They were nearly a mile from the ship when she finally went down. Her lights faltered only near the end. The night was split with the sound of rending metal, steam boiling out of the inner bowels of the vessel, and cries for help now barely audible from the freezing survivors. As the Titanic slipped beneath the surface, a huge cauldron of air bubbles sent a wave snaking out, nearly capsizing a few boats that had not pulled far enough away. Then there was silence and darkness. A few boats lit their lanterns, but the feeble lights only seemed to heighten the immensity of the ocean upon which they bobbed. Just a few feeble cries now remained, and they soon died out until the only sound was the creaking of the oars. One of the men suddenly cried out, There's water in the boat. Everyone looked at their feet, and sure enough, the boat was leaking. The carpenter, Harold Robinson, let out a true seaman's curse. I was afraid of this, he said. There wasn't enough time for the caulking to harden and dry. She's going to leak like a sieve. The cold water will make it even worse, contracting the boat's frame, letting even more come in. The water was ice cold against their feet, and once again, the fear rose in their stomachs, churned into their mouths, and chilled their hearts. It was almost too cruel to have come so close to survival and now, perhaps, be racing back towards death once again. Henning's feet felt like blocks of ice. He stared about wildly, looking for a way out of their predicament. The boat would not last two hours until the Carpathia arrived. The bottom held six inches of water already. Then he saw it. The huge iceberg that had been their undoing lay perhaps another mile or two away. Even in the dark night, it reflected enough starlight to be visible. A faintly glowing blue-green object. It appeared to be oblong-shaped and steeply sided, but at least it was solid. Row, you men, row hard, Henning shouted. Row for the berg, and he pointed into the night. The seaman stared at the berg and then back at Henning's, thinking he'd taken leave of his senses. What good will that do? One of the men complained. It's not a bloody tropical island. We can't even climb out onto it with those sides. Row, I tell you, Henning's shouted, taking his pistol back out. Maybe we can grapple onto it somehow. We only need to buy time, not move in for a bloody vacation. Row for your lives. The rest of you men bail. They began to pull hard for the berg. It was farther away than they realized, the weak light playing tricks on their eyes. Forty-five minutes passed before they reached it. They were now at least three miles from the other boats, but the only thing that concerned any of them was the icy water creeping up the sides of their calves. We're not going to make it, the purser cried. She's leaking too fast. Hennings ignored him, staring hard at the berg as they approached. It was an immense block of ice, a hundred yards long at least, and steep, too steep to even think of climbing out on. Their boat now rode like a coal barge from all the water they'd taken on. Around the other side of her, he yelled. There may be something we can hold on to. Slowly, ponderously, the craft made its way around the end of the berg. There, he cried, and all the men stopped and looked. The other side of the huge chunk of ice had a place where it looked as though a split had occurred. 
It made a sort of channel that they rode into, and at the end of the channel was an almost perfectly positioned flat section of ice, just a few feet above the water's surface. The flat area was perhaps twenty feet long and half as wide. The men stared at it as though it was a gift from God. They were saved.